On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, Tasmanian growers continue to struggle with the wet paddocks. Our poppies will end up losing a hectare, maybe a hectare and a half of one paddock that the water's just sitting in. There's no weeds growing there, so I'm assuming the poppies won't be growing. But considering how wet it's been and the amount of rain we've had since we put the poppies in, I'm more than happy to take that as a win. And the new CEO of Poppy Growers Tasmania says the future for the industry looks bright. But as we learn to manage COVID, we will see more and more elective surgeries coming back onto the scene. That drop-off in demand through the decreased elective surgery numbers will start to pick up. A positive outlook for the Tasmanian poppy industry and still lots of issues with wet paddocks for grain and flower farmers. That story coming up in just a moment. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday, which does mean Richard Bailey and the livestock markets coming up. See what happened at Power Rena yesterday. We'll also check uh, what's happening with that up and down weather and a study on how voices can scare at least the deer away from a property apparently they don't come back. Plus your thoughts on any issue via the text line 0438 922 936 is that number 0438 922 936. Wet weather continues to cause major headaches for farmers growing crops like wheat, barley and canola in the state. Growers in some of the key production areas like the northern midlands can't get onto paddocks to manage disease. Waterlogging is expected to write off some paddocks. Agronomist Michelle Hoggarth says growers have some tough decisions to make about what's worth saving. Disease is probably the biggest issue. Continual wet conditions whilst cereals are in that stem elongation stage brings us at a high risk of rust and, and other disease pressures like that. So we've had some issues with waterlogging in some areas where there's been continual rains and even um, flooding to some degree. And what parts of the north have you seen the most waterlogging or, or hearing cases of that? I suppose it's mostly around that sort of um, Longford area and sort of in some areas of the Fingal Valley where they're very close to rivers, mainly I suppose the South Esk and um, the Macquarie where water's been coming up continually, sort of um, over the last four to six weeks, I suppose, there's been water has been up over crops and, and not actually getting a chance to recede and get away before the next lot of rain comes again. How much water can crops tolerate? They can withstand a little bit with their wet feet, but not for long? Uh, it depends, I suppose, at their stage of development, really, Larissa. Like, um, if it's early on in their life cycle, they can struggle quite a bit because their roots haven't developed very much. But if they're sort of well-established and the roots are down deep into the profile, they can they can withstand a little bit of water in that regard. But the biggest issue comes, I suppose, where, where water sits over the crop. And if you can imagine the soil's um, waterlogged and there's no space in there for air, it's just all water, and then that's when roots sort of really struggle because the whole environment in the soil is about exchange of air and, and water and everything like that. When it is fully saturated in that degree and if it's fully saturated for an extended period period of time, then you know there is the potential for roots to rot and, and die off in that regard. So some of those crops, are they lost, the ones that you've been talking about that have uh, had really serious water logging? Um, yes, yeah, some, some of them will be. So... Um, we haven't really, it's been hard to assess that level of damage, I suppose, up until now because 
you know, the water's been coming on and then it's been going off and we've been hoping that it would be all right and then it's rained again and then it's come on again. And then last week we had a really lovely week of nice warm weather and, and things dried out really well and then we've had another rain event. So um, things that might have recovered are probably now really pushed up against pushed up against a wall. Those crops that aren't waterlogged but have had a fair bit of rain on them and have a fair bit of you know disease in them like like rust or or blotch can they be salvaged with some extra fungicides? They can be to a degree but I think I suppose it's a bit like this season in general Um, in agriculture it's about where your point of return is as far as how much you spend on a crop to make it viable. So, you know, the price is still really quite good for grain and that's on the back of everything that's happening around the rest of the world and what's happening on mainland Australia around their harvest windows. Um, so the price is still really good, but, you know, if, you, if your crop's struggling because of water logging, then throwing more money at it with a fungicide, you know, might not actually achieve you much improved yield in that regard. So, yeah, so growers are making some fairly, I suppose, fairly important decisions around how much money, how much more money they spend on crops. I mean, that comes with fertiliser as well. I mean, it's been really wet up until a point and so urea is expensive and nitrogen is very mobile in the soil and, and people have been putting it on, but then it's been washing away. And, and so, you know, there are crops that are waterlogged and probably nutrient stressed as well to a degree. But whether you put more um, fertiliser on crops now, is again, it, yeah, is it worth on, it? Yeah, is it worth it? It also depends on the growth stage. So, you know, we're getting towards the end of... Um, for early planted crop, we're getting towards the end of when fungicides can be applied because of withholding periods. Like, you know, some of these crops are coming out in head now and some of them are close to flowering. So the window is very, very small now for what you can put on. Um, some crops aren't still aren't trafficable. So, you know, there's, there's limitations around what fungicides you can put on by air. Some of them you can, some of them you can't. So you have to make decisions around all that space as well. And if you're putting more nitrogen on now, it's probably not driving yield. It's probably only keeping your plants alive. So yeah, there's some lots of lots of decisions for farmers to be making every day, really. And as the weather serves us up challenging situations, we have to re reassess, I suppose, the approach we're taking and how we move forward. Are you anticipating a much later harvest? Are crops fairly behind? Um, they do seem to be a little bit behind, and that's probably more to do with our um, changes in temperature. Like, you know, we had a beautiful week last week and, and today it's six degrees. So um, plants don't really like that that much. They tend to sort of shut down and then it takes them a little bit to gear up again and get back into the growing things. So yeah, we will be a little bit behind. And then I suppose we're, we're behind that way in, in time at this stage, but then how, how the weather serves us up at the other end can delay us too. Like if we get this sort of weather, when it actually comes to harvest, then it takes a long time for those those big cereal crops, like yeah, big grained crops, I mean, like wheat and what have you, to dry out and to be dry enough in the head to actually harvest. So what the weather gives us at the other end will dictate that a bit as well. Michelle Hogarth, Senior Agronomist with Nutrient Ag Solutions, talking now to Larissa Smith about the problems caused by that unseasonal weather. Well, as we know, the weather's been decimating crops all across the country. It looks like some Tasmanian crops might turn out okay, though. Matthew Young grows some of the state's only commercial sweet corn and popcorn crops at East Sassafras in the northwest. He's told Meg Powell there could be delays thanks to some of his seed rotting in the ground, but hopefully not losses. Uh, we're on a fairly hilly, I suppose is the way to put it, farm. We haven't got a lot of flat paddocks, which 
can make life interesting some years, but also mm. helps out in others. And how did you go during the recent deluge of rain? We got out of it surprisingly well. Uh, when you get 110 mils of rain in 24 hours, you start thinking of erosion and those sorts of things. But it was just a steady, constant rain, and it didn't wash poppy paddocks. Um, we had a little bit of wash on the edge of one paddock, but there's a grass paddock that runs into that, so all the water came off that. So you've really got to expect it. But apart from getting very waterlogged, we came out of it quite well. And you're one of the few or the only sweet corn commercial sweet corn growers in the state, as far as you know, how is, did your corn crop go? Uh, I thought I'd take a punt and put the first planting in on the Wednesday before we got the big rain on the Friday, and I'm not confident in that patch at all. I know part of it, the seed just rotted in the ground because it's that too wet, so I'm just going to scratch that one out, and I've started again from the other end of the paddock that was dry, and it just changes all the timing of harvest, and affect things on the other end but there's not much you can do about that and and that's a you sort of stagger your plantings for market purposes yeah we we plant every seven to ten days depending on soil temperature and how quickly it comes through the ground and those sort of factors and that gives us about the same harvest ratio on the other end because if we planted everything we grew in one hit you'd the harvest would last 10 days and then you'd have no corn left so, yeah, we try and stagger it, and it's worked pretty well for the last four or five years, and every year is different, so it's just another one. And uh, you've, you've grown quite a uh, popular following at the markets down there with your, your popcorn kernels and your, your corn. Will you be able to meet demand this year? Are you hopeful that you will? Yeah. Yeah, I've got no issues with how things are going to go going forward. Uh, it just means that instead of looking at a harvest in early February like I usually do, it'll be mid-February somewhere, um, depending on how the season goes from now on. If we get some good warm weather, it'll come in quicker. If we don't, then it'll be later. It's just, yeah, once we start harvest, I know we'll have a consistent harvest through, but it's just when we'll start harvest is the unknown factor at this point. Yeah, it's the sweet corn side of things that, yeah, it has the most effect because that is a weekly harvest. We harvest fresh daily to go straight into supermarkets, restaurants, farmers markets, wherever we're going at the time. Uh, the popcorn's got a little bit of, it's got to grow through and dry out. So we're sort of always working a year in front for that. So it's not going to affect that much, but it certainly makes the sweet corn side of things a little bit challenging. So you also grow grow poppies over there. How did they fare? Our poppies will end up losing a hectare, maybe a hectare and a half of one paddock that the water's just sitting in. Uh, there's no weeds growing there, so I'm assuming the poppies won't be growing. But considering how wet it's been and the amount of rain we've had since we put the poppies in, I'm more than happy to take that as a win. I'm guessing that's one of the main challenges for a lot of farmers at the moment is just how wet it is. You can't get on the field. Yeah, well, that's it. A lot of people who have got crops in, um, you've still got to put your herbicide sprays over, you've still got to come in with fungicides when they're due, so it's managing logistics of actually getting over your paddocks and I've sprayed this paddock of poppies and I literally just cut the corner and put a new set of wheel tracks in and hoped I could get through on the tractor without getting bogged and managed to, but I know people who are doing the same thing with early spud crops they got in, they've just cut corners and missed a whole portion of the paddock just to deal with later once it dries out and that's about all you can do, you just got to manage what ground you've got and the crops you've got in. 
Have you heard of people getting bogged out there? Uh, not too much because no one's been game to go on their paddocks. <laughs> um, I know there's a couple of blokes who have gone close, but yeah, they're sort of at the point when you know you can't walk across the paddock, you're not even going to attempt to put a tractor on it. Uh, but yeah, that'll sort of come from now on when those random wet holes in the middle of the paddock that you didn't know were there get you as you're going through. So we'll see how it progresses. Matthew Young from Elfengrove Farm in Tasmania's northwest talking there to Meg Powell about his corn harvest. Could be delayed early next year thanks to all the rain they're having. Coming up, more possible delays to shipping and also new laws on animal welfare in the state. Say hello to Peppa Pig and her friends from ABC Hobart. Look out for the giant inflatable ABC giving tree in the Hobart Christmas pageant as we join in on the Christmas spirit. With 40 floats and over a 1,000 participants, it'll be a pageant to remember. Of course, a Christmas parade wouldn't be the same without the big fella in red. So look out for Santa too. Join Peppa Pig, Santa and your ABC Hobart team this Saturday from 10.30 on the streets of Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up a little bit later in the program, we shall talk to the new CEO of Poppy Growers Tasmania. He's pretty positive about the outlook for the industry. Tugboat crews in 17 Australian ports will today learn whether the Fair Work Commission will allow their employer to lock them out of their workplace indefinitely from Friday. Switzer Australia issued a media release yesterday advising of the lockout, which could further exacerbate shipping delays. Switzer says it has lost work at three ports in the past 12 months and claims industrial action has run to nearly 2,000 hours of work stoppages. But as you're about to hear, Maritime Union of Australia National Secretary Paddy Crumlin claims the company is trying to starve out its workforce. So you're talking about, you know, the big ports, um, iron ore, coal, LNG... Um, then you're talking about terminals, you know, the containers coming in and coming out, ports in Queensland, New South Wales, the largest towage company. And so, yeah, they're vertically and horizontally integrated through all of uh, shipping services because of the – which makes their behaviour that much more odious. We've had industrial action, but it's been oh, with the deft hand and a light hand they say it's 2,000 hours, oh, really. You know, that's a, it's not. It's part of the sort of the Trumpism of their PR to demonise what's going on there. All, all this happened over four years and it's gradually built up. We've done it all under the auspices of the Fair Work. So you say that Switzer's claim that there's been 2,000 hours of work stoppages um, through industrial action is, is rubbish. What do you think that it's figure rubbish. would be? Oh, it's not much at all. It's like some of it's overtime bans sometimes. It's never designed to hurt the movement of ships. And if someone doesn't want to settle on on something, you know, if they want to pick a fight, then um, how do you move them? But you haven't kept a tally. You can't tell me how many hours of industrial action your members have taken. Ah, oh, because, oh, well, they, they say 2,000 hours, but, you know, that's like a cumulative over so long. It's very little, mate. You know, it's not real. It's just like they won't do an extension in one port. There's been nothing that has held up the productivity of the country 
It might have been an annoyance to them, but it's done with a light hand, a light touch, because it's not the point of hurting the economy. It's the point of bringing them back to the table so they bargain in good faith. Again, it's so little has never, ever been an issue. I'm keen to get into some of the delays that this will cause. What agricultural products are we talking about here that could be delayed and and how long could they be delayed for? It depends how militant they want to be. They, they, They can just stop. They're locking out their workforce. They can't go to work to do their job. So... All of the shipping where there's a Spitzer tug in 17 ports will not be going anywhere. Uh, the seafarers aboard those ships will be held hostage to it. The ships outside will be held hostage to it. The uh, workforce can't access it, so it would affect much of the agricultural product. So what pay rises on the table here for your members or what uh, part of what Spitzer is offering um, is not palatable to you? No, it is palatable. Now, all those things are largely resolved. They've just been, there might be a few little gaps about, you know, when it applies from, but they're round in the low, round the CPI. I think, you know, the and that's been running at about 2%. It's in that, in that figure. There's never, like I say, if it was about wages, they'd be howling that. If, if um, But they're not. They don't talk about that because... There's basic agreement on on the material framework and and it's consistent with community expectations. You know, um, obviously the longer it goes on, the more inflation rises, then the whole question then becomes more complex after four years. That's the Maritime Union of Australia National Secretary Paddy Crumlin speaking there with Peter Somerville. Overseas, and a former Secretary for Agriculture in the United Kingdom has delivered a scathing attack on the free trade agreement his country has signed with Australia. George Eustace, who was a Brexit campaigner and helped negotiate the deal, has criticised the UK for rushing into its first deal post-Brexit and also former Prime Minister Liz Truss's role in the final negotiations. He's told the UK Parliament Australia should not have got such a good deal, particularly on beef and sheep exports. And unless we recognise the failures that the Department for International Trade made during the uh, Australia negotiations, we won't be able to learn the lessons of future negotiations. And there are critical negotiations underway right now, notably on CPTPP and on Canada. And it is essential that the Department for International Trade does not repeat uh, the mistakes it made. And so the first step is to recognise that the Australia trade deal is not actually a very good deal for the UK. It wasn't for lack of trying on my part. The UK gave away far too much for far too little in return. What would a good agreement have looked like? Well, it would have been having enduring TRQs on beef in particular, but probably also for sheep as well. The volumes probably would have started at around 10,000 tonnes per annum, rising after a decade to around 60,000, perhaps 80,000 tonnes. That's something that could have been manageable. We did not actually need to give Australia nor New Zealand full liberalisation in beef and sheep. It was not in our economic interest to do so, and neither Australia nor New Zealand had anything to offer in return for such a grand concession. And let us not forget as well that while we are about to open our market to unbridled access for Australian beef, Australia remains one of the few countries left in the world 
that maintains an absolute export ban for British beef. Not a single kilo of British beef is able to be sold in Australia since they maintain a protectionist ban using the BSE, uh, um, BSE episode as a sham reason for doing so. That's British MP and former Agricultural Secretary for the UK, George Eustace, speaking in the UK Parliament, criticising that free trade agreement his country has signed with Australia. Coming up in just a moment, stronger animal welfare laws in the state. The ABC Giving Tree for 2022 has sprung to life. With the way the cost of living's going, a record number of Tasmanian families will rely on the funds raised by the ABC Giving Tree to be able to spread a little joy this Christmas. Donate now at abc.net.au slash givingtree and closer to Christmas we'll distribute your generosity to our partner charities. G'day, it's Helen Shield from your afternoon on ABC Radio Hobart. Please donate now, abc.net.au slash givingtree. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Interesting results of a deer study on a North Tasmanian farm coming up in the second half of the program. Well, changes to the Animal Welfare Act have passed through Parliament and are likely to become law in Tasmania today. Changes bring the Act in line with other states and gives animal welfare inspectors more power. Tasmania's Chief Veterinary Officer, Kevin DeWitt, spoke to Fiona Breen about some of the key changes. Eight of the 11 areas that were agreed to are significant improvements on the Act and um, make the Act more usable from an animal welfare inspector point of view. Does that mean more efficiencies? Yes, indeed. A good example of the type of issue that we have to deal with is uh, the change that's come around in relation to proof of ownership of an animal in that if we have a reasonable belief to say that an animal obviously unidentified uh, belongs to somebody, we can sustain that as the basis for taking action. It's still a requirement of the process for the owner to be able to disprove that they had care or control of the animal, but it is a significant um, advancement from the position that we're in currently that says if somebody says, well, it's not mine, prove, prove that it's mine. Okay, so this happened, this is an issue that comes up in, in terms of livestock? Yes, but um, for us, uh, most often we're dealing with uh, people who own small numbers of livestock and a range of circumstances. It's, it's not likely to be an issue on a proper commercial uh, farming enterprise. What can the agricultural industry expect in terms of the powers of inspectors to come onto their land? Has that changed at all? Yes, it has. Um, it has been expanded, uh, most notably in respect of uh, dwellings. We now have an emergency entry power uh, where the conditions exist you know, to create an emergency, can't find the owner, uh, the owner's incapacitated or absent and so on. An action needs to be taken to rescue an animal, I guess, is the best way to put it. It's not going to mean that we are just seeking to go uh, onto places without just cause and willy-nilly. We also need to respect the um, biosecurity requirements that are in place. Are there any other important changes in this bill, in your view, that uh, people should be aware of? Uh, Yes, there's lots. I mean, eight out of the 11 areas are quite significant puts us in the same place as a number of other jurisdictions on the mainland or uh, in some cases exceeds what's in place in other jurisdictions. I 
recommend people to uh, look at the consultation report that's on the Natural Resources and Environment Tasmania website. Uh, it's called Animal Welfare Act Amendment Bill 2022. Okay, one of the ones is power to require information. What does that mean? Yes, uh, Fiona, that's a good example again. What it means is that uh, we now have reach to people who might depart Tasmania uh, for them to, they are required under this Act now, as, as requested, to supply information, including documents that may relate to a matter. The other one, I'm not sure how many in the agricultural industry would use these, but pronged dog collars. Yes, that, um, Fiona, was uh, the issue that attracted uh, most comment, both for and against, almost equal equal numbers of submissions. And it led to um, a significant amount of debate in the lower and upper houses of parliament. The original uh, proposal stands and it's a, a ban on the use of pronged dog collars. I think it's quite significant because it, it's um, a step in the right direction for affirmation of positive uh, training experiences for, for animals and particularly dogs as opposed to, say, aversive punishment-type training um, methods. Kevin DeWitt, Tasmania's Chief Veterinary Officer. Look, just uh, on other issues, how are you going uh, collecting the information you were calling for information on livestock movement from uh, farmers, etc.? Are farmers filling in the forms and doing everything? As far as I know, Fiona, they are. We've been very busy uh, updating the register, um, and that's both for existing uh, cattle farmers uh, seeking to add sheep to their listing, but also those that uh, have sheep and goats and pigs that, that haven't been registered. Fiona, I'd just like to say one thing in relation to the um, Animal Welfare Act Amendment Bill, uh, and that's to thank uh, particularly members of the Animal Welfare Advisory Committee but also all those that took an interest and provided submissions. And uh, I fully understand that um, not all the ideas were adopted and there'll be some disappointment, but as has been um, stated previously by others, this Act will continue to evolve in, in line with community expectations. That's Tasmania's Chief Veterinary Officer Kevin DeWitt talking to Fiona Breen about the changes to the Animal Welfare Act. Still to come on the country, are the new CEO of Poppy Growers Tasmania, also Richard Bailey, with the livestock markets and details on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Rachel Fisher. Thanks, Tony. In ABC News, in the Supreme Court in Launceston, sentencing submissions are underway for four people found guilty of the manslaughter of a northwest Tasmanian man. 23-year-old Bobby Medcraft died following an altercation in a Burnie street in March 2020. Five people pleaded not guilty to his murder. After five weeks of evidence, five were yesterday found not guilty of murder, but four of the accused were found guilty of manslaughter. The Wilderness Society is claiming victory in a legal battle over state-owned company Sustainable Timber Tasmania over the release of logging plans for forest coops in the eastern tiers. The Society fears Sustainable Timber Tasmania is unlawfully logging swift parrot habitat there. The environmental group had lodged an urgent application in the Supreme Court but says the company offered to make the plans available a day before the hearing was scheduled. 
And US President Joe Biden has convened an emergency meeting of the G7 and NATO leaders in Indonesia. It comes after NATO ally Poland said a Russian-made missile killed two people in the eastern part of its country near the Ukraine border. Mr Biden and the other leaders are in Bali for the G20 summit. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. Hey, Tony. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good. Just trying to keep up with this weather. It's doing one thing one day, another thing the next. And something oh, tell me about different. it. Boy, how are you going with it? <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying today. It's, it's relatively quiet. So yeah. all the excitement from uh, the last couple of days, our most recent event is uh, now over. We're just sort of in the little aftermath period. It's still pretty cool. You know, there was some decent uh, decent rainfall, probably a good place to segue into the, the rainfall observations. Uh, we had up to 9am, 24 hours to 9am this morning, around 63 millimetres at Friendly Beaches. Uh, Eagle Hawk Neck had 60 millimetres, Bream Creek 57. Uh, this strip up and down the middle part of the east coast had between 30 and 40 millimetres, so that was where the focus uh, was yesterday. But uh, just about everywhere except for the, the north and northwest coast uh, received some, some rainfall up to 9am. Uh, Since 9am, we've just had a few relatively light, insignificant showers, mostly about the uh, the west and uh, and south. And that's pretty much the story for the rest of today, just a few light showers about the west and south, extending over the uh, the northern half of the state this afternoon, but not, you know, significant falls by any stretch and much more likely in the, the northeast than in the northwest for the remainder of today. Yeah, we need a long break between rainfall yeah. events, but it's not going to happen, is it? No, not really. So we'll have a couple of days to help recover. So all the all the water in the river systems is working its way down to the down the river systems. So at the moment we've still got a moderate flood warning for the Macquarie Jordan and South Esk rivers, although the Jordan's due to be uh, finalised and I think the South Esk will be uh, downgraded to minor by the end of today. Minor flooding occurring in the, um, sorry, about to occur in the Meander River and the North Esk River, although I think the North Esk is about to be finalised. The generalised flood warning for the Coal River should be finalised later today and the flood watch for the South East and Derwent catchment should be finalised. With any luck, we'll be out of uh, flooding, you know, Flooding lands, flooding territory uh, before the next event, which is uh, potentially slated for uh, Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, so uh, a couple of break days, some light showers around tomorrow with a high uh, moving uh, towards us from the west. A couple of light showers about the west and south in the morning, developing about the east in the afternoon and then clearing away from the west. Friday, high sitting to our sort of southeast of, of Tassie. A few more light showers about the east and north, but nothing too significant. Saturday is going to be a really nice morning. It's temperatures expected to reach into the low to mid-20s in the south on Saturday, and then some showers or rain arrives from the northwest during the afternoon and extends statewide in the evening. Wettest period looks like early Sunday morning with the front crossing us. If you're looking at the period from when it starts raining Saturday to around middle of the day on Sunday, it's in the order of 30 to 50 millimetres about high ground in the northwest and the northeast, otherwise 20 to 30 millimetres, so pretty wet. And uh, looks like a few decent showers uh, elsewhere in the state, but the real focus will be into the northwest. Can we peek around the corner into next week and see what's happening? <laughs> Do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> so behind that cold front, it looks like some cold air comes over the state and uh, potentially snow to six, seven hundred metres again next Monday. So another cold outbreak. Um, so those low 20s that we're talking about on Saturday, they're long gone. We'll be back down into the teens as we are today. And then on Tuesday, it looks pretty windy with another cold front coming across us and uh, potentially bringing some 
reasonable southwesterly winds, so keep an eye out for that one. Don't know why I bothered asking you. I really don't know. <laughs> you asked. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I stopped on Sunday for a reason. Ask and uh, you shall receive. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Any other warnings apart from the flood warnings? Uh, just today, we've still got a bushwalkers weather alert current for the Western Central Plateau District. So we had pretty low snow yesterday. It's rising now. It's about 800 metres, and I'll be able to cancel that one shortly. Still got a strong wind warning for the upper and lower east coasts, but uh, nothing slated for tomorrow other than those, uh, those flood warnings. OK, and the coastal waters and swell. Luke, what's happening there? A similar easing trend. So today, south to southwesterly winds, 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots at times about the east. Uh, tomorrow, a little bit lighter, southwesterly 10 to 20 knots, tending a bit more westerly through Bass Strait. Swell-wise, today and tomorrow, there's a southwesterly in the western south of 2 to 3 metres. There's also a bit of an awkward south to southeasterly wrapping or refracting around the coast in the range of 1 to 2 metres. Uh, through the north today, westerly up to 1 metre. Tomorrow, confused below 2 metre. We start to get an easterly and a westerly, both below 1 metre. Uh, the east coast today and tomorrow has got a southerly in the, in the range of uh, 1 to 2 metres coming up the coast. And significant wave height in the west coast at the moment off... Uh, where is it? Cape Sorrel, 2.8 metres. It's been a few weeks since I've been on shift. I forgot what it's called. And on the east coast <laughs> off Mariah Island, a uh, significant wave height of around 3.2 metres. Seems like the uh, the weather's kind of like, if you don't like the weather yesterday, don't worry, it'll be back again in a couple of days. Yeah, mm. there's something something for everyone. I think everyone's tomatoes are probably disappointed with the, the weather in the last couple of days. And they'll, they'll get false hope on the weekend with those 20-degree temperatures, and then they'll be back into unhappy tomato land from yeah. Monday. Okay. Have you put yours in? No, 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 no. I uh, decided to wait. I, I saw in the, uh, the sort of the medium range weather outlooks that we'd have a bit of a warm period in early November because yeah. I was briefing the fire agencies. Uh, but then I, I knew that there would be a, a chance of it being cooler again. So I, I held off. Okay. So you're waiting till yeah. December. You're cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have an unfair advantage, some, some you, might think. You do. Thank you, Luke. All right. Thanks, Tony. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with all that information. Some of it you probably don't want to hear, but anyway, uh, we've got to have rain, haven't we? It's just a pity. It uh, keeps coming back at the rate of how it does come back. Anyway, hope you're coping out there, whatever you might be doing. Might be a good time to uh, go online and have a look at the Giving Tree donations and see what, uh, what you can add to it. Uh, so go to it, just abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. And maybe uh, that'll brighten your, your day up if you give something to help somebody else. Well, a resurgence in elective surgeries and a softening of restrictions around opioid prescriptions in the US could help improve demand for pain relief produced in Tasmania. At least that's what the new chief executive of Poppy Growers Tasmania is hoping for. The former plant industry analyst told Larissa Smith he's optimistic about the industry's future. I used to say to people I'd get involved in drugs and alcohol primarily. It was poppies, medicinal cannabis, industrial hemp, uh, wine, malting barley. And then when I needed a detox, it was off to vegetables, fruit and berries. And uh, during that time, I also purchased a, uh, a 3,000 tree cherry orchard. So I've also been a cherry farmer for the last uh, seven years. What interested you most about poppies uh, when you were in that role? or What was your involvement in terms of bringing together all the different entities in the industry? Well, it was interesting in that I think it was only the second day I started with the Department of Primary Industries and I was introduced to Keith Rice. And, of course, Keith Rice uh, 
has been a stalwart of, uh, with the poppy industry, having been the chief executive of Poppy Growers Tasmania for the last 36 years. When I first started, there was a lot of uh, a lot of interest in the poppy industry because we've moved to quite a quite a significant growth phase. Some of my first roles were to develop up a range of fact sheets on the poppy industry. So from there, we moved into legislation, moved into licensing requirements. There were issues around um, importation of poppy uh, raw material into Australia from overseas. Yeah, I've had a keen interest in the poppy industry since I started with Primary Industries some nine and a half years ago. You're into about week three on the job. What's the latest on poppy crops? How are they looking? Yeah, look, rain and poppies, when they're newly sown, don't go that well together. So uh, there's been some challenges getting uh, getting the crop into the ground and also um, with having some waterlogging issues. So, yeah, there's some real challenges at the moment. The uh, the plantings are going to be down. Has there been much replanting? Yeah, I think the companies are looking at around about 10% replanting of crops that have been waterlogged. Um, and there's been some crops that haven't been able to be planted. Now, I don't know the exact figure on that. There's still a window of opportunity to get some of those uh, some of those crops in, albeit, yeah, we're getting in towards the middle of uh, November and uh, yeah, the window is fast closing. What are some of the issues that you'd like to get your teeth into over the next, say, six months uh, in this new position? Oh, look, I think there's a number of challenges in front of the industry and we need to remember Tasmania's in an amazing position when it comes to poppies, growing nearly 50% of the world's supply. Only about 18% of the world's population have access to adequate pain management. Now, with an ageing population and with um, more people in developing countries becoming middle class, they're not going to want to see their parents or older members of their communities suffer in their later years. And look, the poppy industry provides some of the best pain management options that are available anywhere in the world. So I see real opportunities into the future, as I said, with a growing population uh, and with an ageing population. And I also think that as we we manage to cope with, I think, what will be an ongoing pandemic or COVID pandemic, I think I don't think it'll ever go away. I think we'll be continuing to see that. But as we learn to manage COVID, we will see more and more elective surgeries coming back onto the scene. So that drop-off in demand through the decreased um, uh, elective surgery uh, numbers uh, will start to pick up. And I think the other thing too is that uh, in the United States, where we've had seen a significant drop-off in demand because of the um, response to over-prescribing, doctors are starting to get a bit more confidence and starting to prescribe more pain medication now that that um, pendulum has swung right back it's now starting to find some middle ground so demand will continue to increase but at the same time your competitors overseas you know whether it's turkey or, or spain are also increasing their production to at a much cheaper price. It is one of the biggest challenges is cost of production. We're not a cheap cost of production centre here in Tasmania. That comes in part from being an island state. Price of wages, price of inputs, of fertilisers, chemicals. So that, that's going to be a real challenge for us to navigate to ensure that 
there's a win-win situation for both the processors and the growers. And uh, that's going to be a challenge for us over the next few years. The other thing that I think is important is that I have been concerned over the years about the potential for synthetics to take market share away from the naturally grown poppies. However, the last four or five years, the International Narcotics Control Board have shown that uh, the uh, synthetics haven't made any further inroads into the percentage. I think all in all, there's a, there's a good future, a bright future, but there's a few hurdles between here and when we might be able to see that bright future in a few years' time. If prices for poppies don't increase next year, can you see <laughs> poppy production falling even further in Tasmania? Yeah, when we talk about poppy production levels, it's easy to compare hectares. What's not quite so easy is to compare weights and assay levels. Whilst our um, area, our areas under under poppy crops has decreased significantly, our assay levels and our weight yields have increased significantly over the last six, eight years as well. So it's not just a direct comparison of hectare with hectare from um, you know, the highs of 2012. Howard Nicholl, the new CEO of Poppy Growers Tasmania, talking there to Larissa Smith. Very positive about the future of the industry. Well, Australian fertiliser and explosive manufacturer Incitec Pivot has weathered a bumper year, posting a net profit after tax of just over a billion dollars. Clint Jasper reports. This year, the price of fertilisers soared after Russia's invasion of Ukraine exacerbated existing supply chain issues, as well as spiking gas prices around the world. In its full-year results, Incitec Pivot reported the price of diammonium phosphate, or DAP, rose from $524 a tonne to $851 a tonne, while urea went from $373 a tonne to $710 a tonne. Despite the price rises, Managing Director and CEO Gianna Johns says the company expects demand from farmers to remain strong into next year. We are very well placed to deliver increased volumes from Foss Hill this year and well positioned to grow our recurring distribution earnings by delivering on our soil health strategy with farm economics expected to remain favourable through the year. Making fertilisers hasn't been easy or cheap. High gas prices made manufacturing more expensive at the company's Phosphate Hill facility, which was compounded by the shutdown of a major gas pipeline that supplied gas from the Northern Territory to Queensland. Despite this, it expects to produce over a million tonnes of fertiliser at Phosphate Hill in the next financial year, saying its gas supplier has confirmed full quantities will be restored by February next year. The gas team secured feedstock for Foss Hill following curtailments in contracted supplies. And while it has come at an elevated cost, it has enabled us to keep the plant running at full rates and capture the earning potential. But by the end of this year, the company will shut down its other facility at Gibson Island, where it briefly produced AdBlue during a national shortage. Overall, thanks to the high prices as well as the lower Australian dollar, the company's fertiliser business saw revenue more than double and earnings climb 130% to $614 million. That's Clint Jasper reporting on the latest results from Australian fertiliser and explosives manufacturer Incitec Pivot. Coming up, a new study on deer and how they love or don't love 
listening to the radio. Say hello to Peppa Pig and her friends from ABC Hobart. Look out for the giant inflatable ABC Giving Tree in the Hobart Christmas pageant as we join in on the Christmas spirit. With 40 floats and over a 1,000 participants, it'll be a pageant to remember. Of course, a Christmas parade wouldn't be the same without the big fella in red. So look out for Santa too. Join Peppa Pig, Santa and your ABC Hobart team this Saturday from 10.30 on the streets of Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Tasmania's feral deer population has been growing by more than 10% per year. Now a UTAS researcher has come up with a quirky way of controlling them and the answer could be found right here at the ABC. News reporter Alison Gastello reports. It's evening on a Tasmanian farm. These deer thought they were alone until... In Melbourne... Up to his elbows in buttery, slippery, oozing paint. Richard Fidler strikes up a conversation. They wait. Then another voice sends them scuttling. I imagine Whitlam's true believers in those early days scratching their heads trying to understand what had just happened. Lucy Turnbull's honours project was to explore the effect human voices have on fallow deer. In Melbourne, up to his elbows in buttery, slippery, oozing paint. Deer numbers were significantly reduced by the sounds of humans. By 50%, according to her research. She's hoping, in the face of an exploding deer problem in Tasmania, it will help landowners protect places of value, whether they're farms or forests. We thought that potentially could be used as a management technique to basically as a sound barrier to keep deer out of certain areas like the Wilderness World Heritage Area. Using camera and sound devices, for nearly six months, Lucy monitored feral deer on a sheep farm in Tasmania's northern Midlands. When deer were detected, on came the radio. Some young people who are taking historic court action against billionaire Clive Palmer. Lucy used the noises of sheep, which deer on this farm are used to, as a comparison. (coughs) While animal noises simply drew a crowd... ABC presenters had quite the opposite effect. Manta rays use facial expressions to greet their mates. On summer nights, I sleep naked in Jerusalem. Even when they didn't run away... Get back on the boat where I started vomiting and didn't stop for hours. It still disrupted their feeding. Three months into the project, Lucy took some of the sound machines down. That way we were able to measure whether deer numbers recovered in the time after we removed the sounds of humans, which they didn't. She doesn't expect this technique alone will protect land from fallow deer, but on its own... All of the theories scientists have developed over the centuries... It does a pretty good job. See, they probably weren't using the country hour. The deer would sit down and listen, wouldn't they? Uh, that was news reporter Alison Costello reporting a quirky way researchers have been uh, keeping deers off certain farms. A little bit of the ABC. Honor student Lucy Turnbull from UTAS has been conducting the research, which was on a farmland in the northern Midlands, and Alison spoke to the farmer Julian von Bibra. We recognise that private landowners in research and are happy to engage with all opportunities that might be good for uh, conservation outcomes as well as primary industries. And how big an issue are deer on your property? They're a considerable um, 
problem to farming and to, especially in this catchment, the Macquarie catchment's um, part of the historic deer range and we're heavily impacted. So what were your initial thoughts about the proposal to play voices out um, as a deterrent for deer? It's novel. It is perhaps um, a really good way of dealing with a problem where the traditional methods of hunting are less appropriate. So um, I I was really encouraging and um, open to the, the possibility and interested in what the outcomes might prove to be. And have you noticed or did you notice in those areas a difference in the presence of deer? So that that was the trial work and I didn't, not often in that range, um, me personally. So it, it was then a matter of um, looking at the data and the implications from that. Could you hear the voices yourself sometimes? Was it strange having them on your, on your property? No, look, in fairness, um, it's quite a large area. And where we had the, the cameras um, the cameras and recording instruments, the whole idea was not to then add human influence on top of all of that. So I stayed well away. Um, it, it's an area, it's quite remote part of the property and it wasn't then for me to be out there listening as well and adding sort of noise to the data. Lucy said um, if it was one day used as a management technique, it'd be most effective in conjunction, though, with other things um, that suggest human activity like hunting. Um, would you agree with that? What we're dealing with is a complex problem. And to then have as many tools available to a farmer as possible or to a private land manager as possible is really important. So um, in some circumstances, hunting's not appropriate, fencing's not appropriate. So to have this tool is um, really important. I can imagine in sort of peri-urban areas where shooting is less applicable, that this might be a great aid. Um, at various times on our property, we don't want um, to have hunters wet when it gets super wet um, or when we're lambing. So it's really handy if we can have additional methods of trying to deter deer. Northern Midlands farmer Julian von Bibra talking to Alison Costello about a research looking at how deer can be put off by the sound of recorded human voices, especially some voices on the ABC. Time on a Wednesday afternoon to check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey. How are you going, Richard? Going well, Tony. Another decent drop of rain during the during the weekend. Uh, most people I spoke to yesterday had anywhere from sort of 30 to 50 mils. And that was then topped off by a pretty good little snowstorm yesterday in certainly the Midlands. How cold was it at Powerena? It was cold. <laughs> <laughs> it was cold. Uh, um, but it was interesting as the day got on, it sort of, you know, it, it, it was a little bit better as we went. And, uh, you know, and some of the, the truck drivers had photos of coming up the Midland Highway, you know, anywhere I think from basically, I think from Baghdad up, you know, uh, through snow. Spring Hill and up and through there, yeah, yeah. They, they, there was some, yeah, a lot of snow. Yeah, yeah. Extraordinary for this time of the year when you think about it. Yeah, well, less than two weeks away from summer, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Numbers of cattle, how did you go? Um, we were not very many, uh, there were only 40 trade and grown cattle. Both restockers and butchers were pretty keen on on yearlings. They paid anywhere from 392 to 444 cents a kilo. Few heavy bullocks made four, uh, 380 to 400 cents. Uh, the best bullocks over just over $3,000 a head. 
And then most of the yard was made up of cows. This market was pretty good. Uh, both exporters, both local exporters in this market. The best heavy cows made 332 to 364 cents a kilo to average 353 cents. And then leaner types anywhere from 270 up to 320 cents a kilo. A few bulls, and these were mainly medium weight bulls, 270 to 284 cents a kilo. Okay. Uh, next cattle sale? Next week, not tomorrow, but the following week at Piranha. Uh, the story is there'll be somewhere between 1,000 and 1,400 cattle, I think. Uh, normally, if they're saying that, they'd be probably closer to 1,400 than, than not. Uh, so uh, that'll be a pretty interesting day, I reckon. Um, there's, there's a lot of grass around. Some of these guys are going to have to buy cattle to, to, uh, to feed them. And lamb and sheep, what happened there? Okay, land market, uh, the numbers were much less than last week because last week we did have those big runs of store lambs. There were 967 lambs, which is 1,200 less than last week. Uh, this market was generally cheaper across the board following interstate trends. The best of the new season's lambs made anywhere from 148 up to $160 a head. And then restockers bought lambs from sort of 140 to $150 in that sort of bracket. Then in the old lambs, the best old heavy lambs, heavy, uh, the heavy old lambs made 164 to $172, trade 126 to 140 and then light trade, these are the lambs that uh, were considerably cheaper, uh, anywhere from 100 to $150, big range there, but a big range in quality as well. And then light MK lambs, anywhere from 80 to $104, Obviously, we've you know old lambs at this time of the year, you know, are starting to get pretty poor in quality generally. Although there were some, some those heavier lambs were good quality lambs. Over in the mutton yard, seven hundred and fifty-three sheep, just a few more than last week. This market was also cheaper. Heavy heavy sheep made one hundred and four to one hundred and twenty dollars. Medium weights ninety-four to one hundred and eighteen, and light sheep fifty to eighty-two dollars. Tony, I reckon this mutton market is probably as cheap as I've seen it in I don't know. Um, two or three years. Uh, it's just following on from what's happening interstate. The word is that, that they're struggling to sell it at the other end, uh, unlike lambs that, that they can sell any amount of. They say there's a lot of chillers that have got a lot of mutton in them and um, that's causing a bit of angst there. I think also some of the big works, I think, are concentrating on killing lambs rather than mutton. The best like, best ewes yesterday, and they were heavy ewes, made, only made $120 and a lot of those sheep are around about that 100 to $105 a head. Yeah, and what you were trying to say before about the older uh, lambs were they getting a bit longer in the two-tooth. They're getting very close to tutus. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll talk to you Friday, Richard. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, and Richard Bailey will check the mainland markets when he does return on Friday. And just a quick note for your diary, the Oatlands sheep and lamb sale, which was due to be held at Oatlands this Friday, has been transferred to Powerrenner Sale Yard starting at 10am. So don't head out to the Oatlands Sale Yards. You'll be there all on your lonesome. This Friday, uh, the Oatlands Lamb and Sheep Sale, Power in a Sale Yard, starting at 10am. And uh, as I say, Richard will be back on Friday with all the details of what's happening with the livestock markets on the mainland. Go to our ABC Rural online page. You'll see that uh, fabulous deer story about uh, the deer listening to ABC Radio and running away and plenty of other great stories as well. That's the program for today. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.